Well, a very warm welcome to A Reason for Hope. We are very glad you're joining us today. It's Friday. You made it. Our last show of this week, and we're very glad that you're joining us. Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship, and we are here live for the next hour to receive your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right. If you have questions about the Bible, perhaps a verse or passage of Scripture that has confused you or you you just love it and would love to delve deeper into it, maybe world events, maybe something in your world, events, something going on, you'd like a biblical perspective, any honest question about the Bible or seek an answer from the Bible, we are here to do that in faith with you for the next hour. And again, we're very glad you're joining us because it's your questions that just guide the show along with me today in the studio is you're back again, Sean, Pastor Sean Richards, me and you here once again and glad to be so. How are you doing? Good. It'll be more of a novelty when I'm not here, but it seems that's right. the constant. <laughs> I know. People, there'll be an outcry. Was, Where's Sean? What happened to Sean? Where's the guy with the beard in the middle? I'm glad you're here. And and over here in the rotating guest chair. That's right. Yes, <laughs> who the yes, the wild card. We never know. Pastor Scott Richards. How you doing, Scott? Today? I'm doing fantastic. It's always great to uh, be able to uh, bring an end to at least our work day by spending some time getting into the Word. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and it's it, we never know where it's going to go. The questions can go all over the place, different subjects, and um, it's very exciting to to be here with you tonight. Uh, let me let you know how you can join us. Obviously, if you're hearing me and seeing me, then you've already found a way. Um, but let me give you some options here. Uh, as I mentioned, A Reason for Hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. So you can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, go to the Watch Live tab, and you can find us there. Uh, you can create a, a name and sign in, and then you can um, use the chat functions there. Also on Facebook, we're at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We have an app as well. If you go to your app store on your mobile device, search for Calvary Christian Fellowship, download the app. You can join us there as well. And on Roku and Apple TV, you'll be able to watch us on your big screen, gather the family around, gather the pets around, have a wonderful <laughs> evening with us. Because we're here to preach the gospel to every creature. That's right. So bring the pets. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And Jesus loves the little children. Yeah. So why not? Uh, on YouTube, the channel is called A Reason for Hope. That's on YouTube, A Reason for Hope. And you can email us your questions at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questions for hope, all spelled out with letters at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on the radio, on Reach Radio, or one of the affiliates, uh, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded. Uh, but do email your questions, and we will get to them on our next show, Lord willing. Uh, Pastor Sean, would you like to pray for us as we delve into our time together. Happy to. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word and your spirit. And we pray servicing your people with your word and with your heart and allow us to not only be equipped for that ministry, but to do so for your good pleasure, with the right heart, with the right words, with the right attitude. We're thankful that you've given us the right material and pray that that would be all that's represented here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Sean. Hey, uh, before uh, airtime, I spent a little uh, bit of time uh, dipping my toe into the uh, wild and <laughs> woolly currents of social media. And it does seem that there's a lot of people asking uh, a question about the times we're living in. I think it was the discussion uh, that uh, President Biden had with Jake Tapper on CNN, where uh, the idea of some kind of limited war, limited nuclear war uh, regarding Russia and Ukraine came up. Uh, and uh, there was a reaction to that. Uh, Prime Minister of Macron of France uh, talked about how we shouldn't be cavalier about throwing out these terms about Armageddon and so on. 
But uh, the, the question that uh, was, was thrown my way and seemed to be on the hearts of a lot of people was, um, are we really living in the last days? It was interesting that some of the uh, Twitter posters uh, that uh, I saw that uh, are validly not even Christians uh, are asking, are we nearing the end of the world? And so the question often comes up, how can we know we're in the last days? Can we know we're in the last days? And uh, I think there's a, a couple of ways where we can answer that question in the affirmative. We don't need to leave it to speculation. Uh, the interesting thing is the Bible tells us that uh, living in the last days uh, is really where we are. Uh, the Bible defines the last days as the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming in a broad sense of the term. Uh, I realize that when people are asking, are we near the end of the world, are we in the last days, they're asking for something far more specific. Are we the generation that will see the return of our Lord Jesus Christ? Now, Sean, uh, you probably get asked this question quite a bit in your uh, online ministry and in your interactions with youth. How do you respond to that? Are we living in the last days? We should until proven otherwise. <laughs> And that's always the attitude we need to have because, again, like we try to encourage in the broadcast, working in alternatives, if I adopt the attitude of the Lord is delaying his coming, he won't come for another so-and-so years, or he won't come in my lifetime, it is not only a direct quotation of being on the wrong end of one of Jesus' parables where he said yeah. this is the kind of person you don't want to be, but even more so and more specifically, it produces the wrong kind of fruit in your relationship with God. If we adopt cynicism and this sense of a not just lack of accountability, but certainly including that, that I don't live my life in expectation of seeing Jesus, but this jaded, I guess, uh, drudgery of, well, I guess Jesus is going to get here when he gets here, and I just got to suffer until then. We end up producing the kind of fruit that Jesus described, where he would not only get drunk with the drunkards, but also abuse his fellow servants. And I'm sure, as you've seen on the internet once or twice, that Christians who do adopt this mindset certainly bear that kind of fruit. We all fall into it from time to time. But if we understand that the mindset of a true believer shouldn't be to ask, well, could this world get any worse? Or what's going to happen next as far as the geopolitical concerns of the world are? Granted, if you're trying to invest in stock, I'd wait until the next three elections. But if we're talking about the actual issues at hand, every single believer should live this day as if it was their last, because eventually you will be proven right. And we don't base this off of some wish fulfillment or this nihilistic anticipation of our own deaths, but because of the promise of our Lord to unanticipatably return for us at any given time. When he spelled out for us in very plain, granted he spoke it in Aramaic, but plain language for us to understand that no man will know the day or the hour. Obviously, if we say, well, that is unanticipatable at all times in history. Well, people who missed it will definitely know the day and hour that he took place. People who are looking back in history from the time of the rapture will know when it is taking place. So if it's not relevant to those in the present or the future, who is that statement directed to? Those in the past, those who are anticipating the rapture, it will be unanticipatable. So that then being said, what should be our attitude? The same attitude that every sound believer has had throughout the ages. Maranatha, 
Come, Lord Jesus, right. the second to last verse of the Bible. Yeah. That should be our mindset. Now note, if the world ends up heading directions we would rather not let it take, then we join literally everyone else in history who has, to quote uh, J.R.R. Uh, Tolkien, all those who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we can decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And there's sound wisdom there, because if I adopt the First Thessalonians 4 and 5 mindset, not just including the rapture, but understanding the will of God for me in this day and age, he gives two opportunities, first in regards to sexual purity, and second in regards to prayer, rejoicing always and praying without ceasing in everything, not for everything, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you. That's what we need to fall back on. As far as what we're told beyond that, we need to let the matters fall where they may, because it's first, not our responsibility, and secondly, not something we can do about even if we were aware of it anyway. The whole point of the matter needs to be centered on that, that we are waiting for our Lord's return, and as the bumper sticker slogan uh, oftentimes is read as saying, trying to look busy until then. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. You know, the other, I think, uh, heads up uh, prophecy that tells us that we are definitely in the general ballpark is that Israel is back in the land. Um, reading through of the, the book of Ezekiel, chapters uh, 37 through uh, 39, actually you can begin at verse 36, fascinating because uh, some uh, oh, uh, 700 years, or I should say uh, almost 600 years before the time of Christ, uh, Ezekiel prophesied that uh, Israel would be desolate, uh, that it would be left uh, as a waste place for a long period of centuries, and then suddenly uh, it would be restored, uh, that God would first restore the land and that it would become incredibly fruitful. Well, we see that Israel is not only back in the land, but is one of the largest exporters of fruits and vegetables to the world. Uh, secondly, Israel's people would be restored to the land, first physically, then spiritually. Ezekiel's famous prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones tells us that that's going to be a twofold event. First, the physical uh, return of the people. Uh, with no breath in them, no spirit from God, but then God will breathe on them and they will come spiritually alive again. Then we see the famous Gog and Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39, that a Russian-led coalition of nations, among them Iran, uh, ancient Persia, modern Iranians, prefer to be called Persians even today, uh, is going to invade Israel and is going to be supernaturally judged at, at, a, uh, at a time of God's choosing. Uh, in a way that Israel is going to know that the Lord's God and never turn their back on him again. Now, I think that's really fascinating because we see Iran and Russia coming into a, a partnership they have never in their previous history ever had. Uh, there was no relationship between Iran and Russia. Uh, even uh, in uh, World War II, the only time a Russian leader ever came into a place was controlled by Iran was uh, when Joseph Stalin met with the other allied leaders in Yalta. That was it. Uh, now we find that Iran and uh, Russia are fast friends, exchanging technology like drone technology and so on. Uh, the uh, stage is definitely being set. So uh, granted, uh, we don't know the day or the hour. I think we can know the general time frame. And as uh, we often point out, when it comes to biblical prophecy, uh, Israel is God's hour hand, Jerusalem is the minute hand, and the Temple Mount area, and what goes on there is the second hand. So uh, keep a watch out and keep looking up. Uh, our salvation's drawing nearer. So mm. for those of you who are worried about this world going crazy, yeah, the Bible said that's going to happen. 
Uh, we are told that uh, wicked people and false prophets are going to wax worse and worse uh, as the time of the end draws near. I think we are certainly seeing that. Uh, there are some who will say, well, we've been more, we're more tolerant now uh, than we've ever been. Well, I guess it depends how you define tolerance or how you focus it. Granted, uh, certain uh, moral excesses are definitely not only tolerated, but championed in our culture today. But uh, as we have seen even over the last couple of weeks, individuals who are guilty of nothing else than protesting in front of an abortion clinic mm. have been visited by the FBI at five in the morning, arrested and taken away in shackles for no other reason than exercising what we used to call our First Amendment rights. Mm. So uh, I guess uh, certain things are tolerated, but certain things definitely are not tolerated. And uh, when we begin to see, for instance, institutions like the Bank of America uh, shutting out uh, individuals uh, for no other reason than uh, their political points of view, that uh, venues uh, that are very popular, like PayPal, uh, got uh, caught in a sense with their hand in the cookie jar, uh, putting forth a policy that they could uh, uh, garnish up to $2,500 from a participant's account with no notice based upon the postings they make on social media. No way. If it didn't fit with PayPal's previously agreed to ideas of tolerance and uh, virtue, uh, you could uh, end up being dinged by PayPal for $2,500 and have nothing to say about that. Now, when that came out uh, earlier this week, PayPal stock obviously took a major header, mm -hmm. and uh, PayPal kind of backpedaled a little bit on that. But I've been told that after the backpedaling was done, uh, the same uh, basic policy has been reinstituted. So uh, when we talk about tolerance, I think we need to uh, take a look at that with a broader brush rather than just saying, well, a certain uh, kind of uh, lifestyle that was considered excessive or perverse in a previous era is now being celebrated. I'm not sure that's a step forward, and I'm not sure that that's an honest evaluation of an increasing kind of tolerance in our culture. Mm. Uh, no matter what side of the political persuasion you're, you're on, you would have to say that, say, uh, the Bank of America canceling people because of making posts, uh, platforms like PayPal, uh, saying that uh, we're gonna garnish you $2,500 of your account if we don't like what you're posting online. I don't think these are indications that anyone, no matter what your political persuasion is, should uh, celebrate or say that we are moving in a tolerant direction. Mm. And uh, we as believers in Christ, you know, I look at this and I go, well, uh, once again, I got saved in 1973 and I was around when the first End Times movies came out, good yep. old Left Behind, mm. where, uh, you know, you've got the razor running in the sink and someone's disappeared and you've been left behind and so on. <laughs> Uh, you know, we tend to think, oh, you know, things really have to change quite a bit before we have, say, a one-world government. Uh, we have, say, a, uh, a kind of a regime in place that would institute right think on moral and spiritual issues, the point where people could not participate, even economically, mm. uh, if they didn't toe the party line. We thought, oh, well, we've got to be centuries away from that. Now, not so much. Again, uh, the Antichrist, we believe, cannot reveal himself as such until we, as the church, are removed at the biblical event called the rapture. Mm. 
mm. uh, where he catches us up to be in his presence uh, before the final seven-year period of time called the tribulation. We believe that wholeheartedly. But we also believe that an awful lot of uh, the stage setting, if you will, can and is going on right now. And uh, when we take a look at some of the historical precedent, uh, for instance, the, uh, the moral collapse of Germany and the Weimar Republic that left open the doors for a strong-arm dictator like Hitler to come on the scene. I believe we are seeing similar uh, uh, divorcement, if you will, from any kind of biblical morality that they saw in Weimar Germany, except this time, I think, on a global scale. Uh, I think the stage is being set, as uh, the British historian Arnold Toynbee once said, for the deifying of any Caesar who comes on the scene and promises stability and peace. Mm. So hang on to your hats. Uh, you know, when we see these things begin to happen, Jesus said, look up or your salvation draws near. Yeah, yeah. amen. Yeah. Uh, um, question sent along to us. This is a follow-up from yesterday from Annie, correct? Yeah, let me, let me say this first, Sean. Someone, uh, David, is joining us through our website. Welcome, David. We're glad that you're there. This relates to what you were just saying, Pastor Scott. I don't know if you, um, you saw that on, on, uh, through our website or not, but he's asking... Um, about you know, it, it, could you say that the world is is if if people are more accepting um, of you know different lifestyles and of people, could you say that the world's getting better and not worse? You know, what's wrong with cancel culture? What's wrong with accepting people and that kind of you know thing? What is what is I wrong? I can name with that? three. Uh, I just Google or actually a DuckDuckGo searched uh, pastors being arrested for hate speech and. Five out of the 11 results are all regarding any sort of disagreement in the LGBT, a.k.a. hedonist lifestyle. We have examples, two of which are in the U.K., one in Canada, I'm sure of which you're familiar. We discussed it quite frequently when it took place in 2019. Others in Pakistan and, of course, here in the United States. If you'd like me to list off names, I think that would be sufficient for, I guess, a citation. But the point being made is when tolerance only goes one direction, you listed off some examples of people who are bullies being expelled towards a certain lifestyle, but also note that the people who bully people from that lifestyle are given a free pass. People who make up claims and accusations like Amber Heard, yes, they are held accountable, but what about the rape hoaxes that continue to be unanswered for since the time of the hashtag MeToo movement? If you're going to, and this is what's called a cherry-picking fallacy, mm -hmm. choose individual samples of things that fit your taste, then you're not going to represent the entire plethora of things that are against your position. It's not a rational conclusion to come to when you only pick specific examples and make them out to be an ultimately, from an antichrist worldview, assumption that because it is in your favor, therefore it is in God's. And I wanted to delay the answering to this question for a moment because there was something I needed to clarify from him specifically. He did. He said that he does believe that Jesus is of Nazareth is God and his Lord, but he also says he still follows the culture. Uh, he claims to be a Christian, but he likes progressive Christianity better than far-right, far-right, too judgmental. They make fun of people now. They are like Nazis, Christianity. So... I think this will, I guess, dovetail into a fun conversation. We have a worksheet we can read through as well. But uh, when it comes to the idea of progressive Christianity, uh, do we agree with the idea that culture should be our metric for judging godliness? 
Should our culture be the standard by which we interpret and dictate and apply the Bible to our lives? And if so, why? If not, why? Well, um, the idea of following culture rather than Scripture uh, is not a new one. Uh, In fact, uh, if you want to take a look at arguably one of the worst periods in the history of Israel, take a time, take a look at the book of Judges. Uh, Following the death of Joshua, uh, the people of Israel were there in the Promised Land. They didn't deal with the Canaanites as they were supposed to. And so the Canaanites continued to influence the Israelites. They would turn from a relationship with the true and living God, begin to worship idols. God would honor that turning, and they would suffer the consequences. They'd be uh, abused and invaded by uh, the surrounding peoples that were supposed to have been expelled from the land. Well, the people of Israel would then turn and cry out to God. God would raise up a judge, a deliverer, uh, and uh, an amazing victory would take place. And then Israel would have peace and prosperity, and then the cycle would begin to repeat. They began to fall in love with their blessings rather than the source of their blessings, Mm -hmm. and lo and behold, uh, they would turn their back on God. God would say, all right, here we go. The funny thing about the book of Judges, it's been called the book of seven cycles because we see that pattern repeated over and over and over again. And I think there's a reason for that. If you take a look at human history, that tends to be the way things operate. We tend to think of uh, history moving in, you know, a, uh, a continual upgrade from, you know, the primitive times to our modern sophisticated times. But in reality, you take a look at ancient history, you see that in the past, there have been some incredibly sophisticated times and civiliz- civilizations, some even having uh, discoveries and breakthroughs that we're just catching up with today. Mm. Well, lo and behold, these uh, cultures would get to a place where finally their moral foundation would collapse. And when the moral foundation collapsed, pretty soon the society would collapse. Mm. And so you have these peaks and then dark times, peaks and then dark times. I believe that what we are writing right now is one of those peaks as far as sophistication and culture is concerned. But those peaks in sophistication and culture, when we turn away from the knowledge of the true and living God, inevitably lead to a dark time. And the Mm. book of Judges models this for us. And there is a refrain that goes on there that we need to take to heart if we're going to start to say, oh yeah, I like this idea of progressive Christianity. I mean, uh, we, we throw some Jesus on it, but in essence, we don't believe there's anything as absolute truth binding on all people at all times. We give lip service to Jesus, but as C.S. Lewis once commented, we don't pay the slightest bit of attention to anything he had to say Mm. uh, about moral issues within our lives. Well, that leaves us not with a relationship with Jesus, only some moral moral and intellectual theory about him. You know, and so in the book of Judges, we are told this one refrain, and I think it's so key. It says, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Mm. Now, that is the foundation stone of progressivism in general, Mm. uh, because progressive thought teaches the eventual perfectibility of man. It teaches the idea that man can be the measure of all things, that we don't need to have any kind of external form of morality or absolute truth guiding or directing us, mm. we can figure it out ourselves. And and we get the propagandizing going on through our media. Star Trek is a great example of that. It was the worldview of Gene Roddenberry and the others who developed the series that man would one day evolve to the place where war and poverty and prejudice and want would be things of the past, mm. that we'd finally get to that place through technology, 
uh, and, and through education, that uh, human beings would eventually be perfectible and uh, that we could then reach out to the stars and so on. The sky's the limit, if you will. Mm. Well, you know, lo and behold, uh, you know, these kind of messages are sold to us, but the truth uh, of life just ain't that way. Uh, you know, when I hear people say things like, uh, well, you know, progressivism is so tolerant. Well, I, I respond. In fact, I got into a conversation with a person online about this when they were saying this, uh, saying, well, you obviously haven't been on a college campus any time recently. I'll tell you, even back when I was in school, not long after the earth cooled and dinosaurs still roamed, uh, I remember uh, being, uh, sitting down for uh, the opening lecture of a psychology class. And the professor began his remarks by saying, okay, first of all, if you're a man, I don't want you in this class because I like my classes to be all women. Uh, I'm like, well, that's interesting. And he goes, secondly, if you're one of those born-again Christians, you need to leave right now because I hate you people. This is a direct quote. Now, uh, tolerance, <laughs> not you so know, much. not so much. And my experience, even back in the groovy late 70s and early 80s, in uh, secular education was this. You could stand up in a class and say, hey man, I worship citrus fruit. And people would say, oh man, that's beautiful. That's great, I'm glad that's fulfilling. Uh, you know, you, you could be a Satanist and they'd say, well, you know, I mean, it's a little, you know, but uh, you know, as long as you don't put your trip on somebody else, that's great. But as soon as anybody would raise their hand and say, I'm a born again Christian, it would be like, oh, <gasps> Who let you into this institution? Oh, my gosh, we're going to have to disinfect the room. You know, how in the world can he? And, yeah, I'll tell you, I, I would see professors in classes I was in that had nothing whatsoever to do with Christianity take time out of their lectures to display, oftentimes, their incredible lack of knowledge uh, about the Bible in deriding it before turning around and getting back to their lectures. Oftentimes, I'd have to raise my hand and say things like, excuse me, do you mind talking about something you know something about? Yeah. And then it was on like Donkey Kong. Well, you know, I'm all for truth being found in the marketplace of ideas, and I don't think Christianity should get some kind of set aside so that we can practice our faith without anybody hurting our feelings. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if we say the same sort of things that Jesus said to the same sort of people he said them to, we're going to get what he got. And, and we're all in, you know, as far as Christians are concerned, because we realize something. Uh, Jesus said that the world is going to hate you because it hated me first, because I accuse it of sin and evil. You know, so to say on the one side of the coin, I believe in Jesus, or to recite some creed about saying, well, I think he was God. All right, great. That's a great place to start. What do you think about what he taught? What do you think about the moral view he espoused? Because, for instance, as far as, uh, you know, again, David's uh, uh, comments here, uh, the, the, the bottom line is this. Jesus defined where our sexuality should be practiced. Mm. In Matthew 19, he said, uh, have you not read that at the beginning he made them male and female? For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus was also very anti-adultery and anti-fornication. He made very strong statements about this. Now, Understand something. What Jesus was saying is that the way God has designed our sexuality is this. It is to be practiced in the one man, one woman, committed together for life institution called biblical marriage. Now, our cultures redefine marriage. That's why I use the word biblical. If I, through my heterosexual lust, decide I'm going to practice my sexuality outside those boundaries, either by being involved sexually, 
before the commitment of marriage or after marriage being involved sexually with someone who's not my wife, I've committed in the eyes of God a sin because I've taken the gift of sexuality and I've practiced it outside the boundaries that God has given to me. Homosexual practice works exactly the same way. It's not that it's worse than heterosexual lust, but it is another form of lust. And so if we violate those boundaries, no matter how we feel about that, uh, we have to realize that God doesn't share that opinion and that Jesus himself, who we claim to follow, uh, has a very different point of view on the practice of our sexuality, both heterosexually and homosexually, that our culture celebrates. That's one of the reasons why abortion is such a huge problem in our culture, because our culture says, sleep with whoever you wish, and there are no consequences, even if it means uh, the taking of a human life to cover your tracks. So um, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, doesn't really matter. The issue is mankind in rebellion against God. Mm -hmm. God says, this is the way I've given you this gift. This is how it is to be practiced for your blessing and benefit. We in our fallen nature basically look at God and say, we'll see about that. Yeah. So that's really what it comes yeah. down to. And that's and such an important verse, the people do what's right in their own eyes, because isn't that what we do so much? You know, what, was it Happy Days, the theme feels so right, can't be wrong? Am I right in saying yeah. was that from Happy Days? <laughs> um, was it Happy Days? No, I think that was, uh, that was Debbie Boone. Was it? Feels, you light up my life. It can't yeah. be wrong when it feels so right. Oh, well, I'm thinking that yeah. feels yeah. so right, yeah. can't be wrong. I don't yeah, know, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, I think was you're right. it? Yeah. 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 Anyway, the phrase is important, but yeah. Yeah. feels so right, can't be wrong, and that's why, I mean, isn't that what this Reason for Hope is about? The authority of the word, having that discipline, um, to elevate God's word to be the authority and not what we feel or what we think and what we want to do in our own eyes. You know, yeah. That's really the heart yeah. of this, this show. Yeah. Sorry, Sean. Your organization. Yeah. When it comes to, um, and ironically enough, I uh, asked him the first of many questions that we need to be ready to answer for when someone comes up to us and say that they support a more progressive version of Christianity. Uh, we printed this out and provided it for our local fellowship, not again to even necessarily answer, but merely to inform the positions of those who call themselves progressive Christianity. I asked uh, the individual who identifies as a progressive Christian, and ironically enough, after this first question, they said, I hurt their feelings and said they left. So uh, that's fun. But when it comes to what progressive Christianity teaches, all of you need to be informed of some very serious things that they affirm as well as what they deny. We'll start with the latter. The denials are first of the atonement. I asked him, what did Jesus die for? The response was, Jesus died for love because he loves me. I didn't ask for who. I didn't ask why. I asked what he died for, and the reason why I asked that is because progressive Christians deny the need for the atonement, or the at-one-ment, if you will, that we have sin and need to be restored back to a relationship with God. That is something they deny and thus don't need a Savior for. Thus, you bring up any topic of sin, they will either shy away, get emotional, or change the topic and deflect it into a personal attack. The second denial of progressive Christianity, and this is a serious non-negotiable, is the denial of biblical authority and inspiration. The Bible, this is uh, quoting again the article we printed out, is viewed more like an ancient scriptural travel journal than the inspired and errant authoritative word of God. 
The biblical writers are viewed as well-meaning ancient people who were doing Bronze their best. Bronze Age, they always throw that one in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they're, um, actually, and I quote from uh, our friend here, but he said, they're doing their best to understand God in the times and places in which they lived, but we're not necessarily speaking for God. Scripture is also seen as contradictory, internally uh, not internally coherent, and not authoritative for Christians. Now, what would be our response to that? This is important. Well, uh, the, when someone says that uh, the, the, these people were just talking about God, uh, it tells me that they haven't read the Scripture, because one of the hallmarks of the prophets uh, was the phrase, thus saith the Lord. Now, when someone said, thus saith the Lord, that was heavy duty. It wasn't just, you know, I kind of feel like God may be saying this to me, and I've got some feelings, and I'm writing this out poetically, and, and so on. When you said that, you assumed the role of a prophet. And in the laws of Moses, we are told two things about prophets. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, we are told that if a prophet or a, a seer of, of dreams and so forth comes to you and performs a sign and a wonder, and it comes to pass, but he leads you to worship other gods which you haven't known, you're not supposed to listen to him. The penalty for that was death. We are also told that if a prophet comes on the scene and prophesies, and the people ask, well, how will we know a word that the Lord's not spoken? If what they say doesn't come to pass, they have spoken it presumptuously. You shall not listen to them. So it wasn't based on whether or not they hurt your feelings. It wasn't whether or not they didn't agree with the majority view. What made someone a false prophet was whether their statements aligned with truth with reality. They either made a claim about the future in the name of God and it failed. It wasn't just, oh, it's my interpretation of the future, and then run a, some political spin on it. It was, if you said something that's either true or false in the name of God and it was false, you would be killed. Now, why was it such a serious crime? Because we believe that the afterlife matters, and informing people falsely about the afterlife is akin to spiritual murder deceiving people, leading them away from the gospel is not something we take lightly. The good news for the progressive is that we as Christians don't function as a government like Israel did. They owed um, subservience to God as their head of state. Yeah, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And yeah. that's key. But Israel had seen miracles, and everyone who saw those miracles also agreed to serve and obey the law and all the penalties therein, and then they were held accountable for it. We note Jesus did not contradict the law of Moses, but rather affirmed it. So if you want to poo-poo Leviticus 18, understand that was that's why we don't call you a Christian. You reject our source of Scripture. And the reason why that is such a serious issue is because how do you define what Scripture is? How do you define who God is? How do you find what right and wrong are? unless it's in something a little bit more cohesive than how I feel or the majority vote. The third aspect of progressive Christianity is the denial of original sin, that the only sin is shame. The things that make me feel bad are the only evil, and that if you condemn me for something that I've been convinced through propaganda and entertainment as something that I am rather than something that I do, you are making me feel ashamed. That's sinful. So understand, sin is something that they've loaded and redefined. The, th the fourth thing that they deny, also a non-negotiable, is the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, most 
progressives will say, oh yeah, I believe that Jesus is God, just because that's generally what Christians ought to say. But when it comes to presenting him as a model of their ultimate authority, they are very prone and key to either redefine his words or dismiss them as just his opinion and treat him more as a wise teacher than as their Lord. The fifth aspect of progressive Christianity is the denial of the physical resurrection of Jesus. Once again, a non-negotiable. They'd say that uh, it's not really important. We just need to draw ideas from the resurrection, not to acknowledge it as historical fact. Whereas in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 7, it notes that is the gospel by which we are saved, which they also deny we need saving from. And if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, your faith is futile, 1 Corinthians 15 says. And, and you're your still in your sin. If Jesus if the dead are not raised, we among all men are most to be pitied. But yeah. what does the next verse say? Yeah, but Jesus has, has been risen. Uh, the sixth aspect is the denial of the virgin birth. Much like the evidence for the resurrection, they would deny miracles in order to either out of a self-imposed sense of female empowerment, not use a woman as an instrument of God's plan, but rather the orchestrator of it. They would deny um, Mary's role because of the interesting propaganda centered around it, that she was either A, the victim of sexual assault by God, despite what Luke chapter 1, her own eyewitness biography on the matter, said she said, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, or they would just say that it was demeaning for her to be used by God to enter this world as if all that a woman is is a womb. Now, uh, Dad, speaking as a Christian myself and asking you also as a legitimate Christian, do you believe that women are only wombs? No. Do you think that our God, whom we try to emulate and view his creation through, also only saw Mary as a womb? Absolutely not. So make sure that those things are issues you're ready and prepared for to answer. They would also deny the Trinity, which is, again, a non-negotiable. They don't believe in a God that can save them. And they also deny the sinlessness of Jesus. Uh, individuals of the progressive, Christ, uh, progressive Christian movement excuse me, have definitely gone on public gone public on the issue of Jesus needing to be corrected and needing to repent from his bigotry and his racism and his sexism and so forth. Anything that would reflect the sentiments of a first right. century Jew or any affirmations of the Old Testament would, of course, have been seen as sin in Jesus or in the progressive Christian's eyes because Jesus was affirming things that make them feel bad. Now, going to the affirmations, what do progressive Christians stand for? Well, on top of denying pretty much everything about Christianity other than the name Christian, they affirm LGBTQ or hedonist relationships. They affirm universalism. And again, for the audience listening at home, what is that? Uh, that is the teaching that eventually everybody gets saved, including Satan. So Hitler in heaven. Yes. Yes, as long as uh, he doesn't Because make God him. is so loving. He can't condemn anyone. And you can't define love as long as it makes you feel good about yourself. Uh, they also affirm social justice and critical race theory. These are, of course, antichrist concepts with no possibility of redemption, only condemnation for people who make them feel bad. Pluralism, what does that mean? Well, the idea that there is no one truth, but that all truths lead to that same great ocean, which is God. And they would consider Christianity one equal option among many, as alongside Islam, which our friend here, if he was in interaction with an authentic Muslim, would be willing to throw him off a building. So that's interesting. They also affirm pantheism or panentheism, which is a view of God that he is not a unique and distinct being from his creation, but that he is expressed, reflected, and existent 
in all of creation. We as Christians do not believe that. Uh, people who would take Psalm 139, I believe, out of context and noting that if I uh, go as far, uh, well, I ascend to the highest depths of heaven, go into the lower depths of the sea, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. We don't say that God is all those things. He's saying that he is present with us wherever we are. He's not bound by space. He not I- He isn't the space itself. If you'd like uh, more details on these claims regarding progressive Christianity and what they affirm, uh, feel free to read Elisa Chidler's uh, book, Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. Uh, and you can also check out her website, if that's too long a title, uh, at A-L-I-S-A-C-H-I-L-D-E-R-S.com. That is her name, Elisa Chidler's. A-L-I-S-A-C-H-I-L-D-E-R-S dot com. So feel free to take advantage of that and, of course, setting us off on a very interesting tone. Note that when we're talking about this issue and why I also was affirming early on in the conversation, do you claim to be a Christian, that there is in fact a difference between a progressive Christian and just someone in the world, and we need to treat them differently. If someone claims the name of Christ, then they need to be held to the claims of Christ. If someone does not claim the name of Christ, they need to know the name of Christ. So if you're listening and you're a part of the hedonist lifestyle or the progressive movement, but not necessarily Christianity, understand that I hold no hatred for you, understand that I wish no harm upon you, understand that I desire heaven for you, and understand that I want you to know my God personally so that you can enjoy him with me forever. That being said, I love you enough to tell you when I believe that you are in need of a savior. And while that may make you feel bad, it made me feel bad too. But I don't respond to conviction, that sense that I am wrong, with hostility because I know and have had many influences in my life, the person to my right, your left being one of them, of people who loved me enough, who were able to communicate to me enough that if they wanted to tell me something or even introduce harm to my life, like guilt, It was so I would avoid something worse, that there are consequences for actions. God has given us freedom of choice, but not freedom from consequence. And if you continue a life separated from him, he will permit you the freedom to exist eternally apart from him. And while that does sound like heaven to you, it is not to me and it is not to him. And I encourage you to view things from his perspective using their language. So when we're talking to progressive Christians, remember to emphasize, despite the propaganda, that if anyone who disagrees with them, that means that they hate them. That's not the case. But if someone does claim the name of Christ, this is how we're to treat them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, it says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world, or the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. The people who need the gospel need the gospel. But then goes on in verse 11 to say, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. Notice, named a brother. They call themselves Christians. They call themselves followers of Christ who is sexually immoral or covetous or idolater or viler or drunkard or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Notice his contrast. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, and he quotes uh, Deuteronomy 17, verse 7, put away from yourselves the evil person. When we correct people, it's because we care. 
when we correct people, it's because they're heading in a direction we know and are aware of the fact that will lead them in bad places. If we are willing to correct somebody, we will be met with hostility because our Lord said that the gospel is going to be offensive, a stumbling block to those who don't believe it. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are born again, it is life and life everlasting. So make sure that you understand their hostility is not personal, it's demonic. It's founded upon false doctrine and false teaching. And if they're victims of that, our heart should be for their restoration. However, and this is the big turn in the table, if they claim the name of Christ and then start preaching the ways of the world, they have suddenly gone from someone who needs the gospel into an obstacle, an opposition to the gospel in the body of Christ. And it is the responsibility of myself and my father and all those in our church fellowship and any Christian worth his salt to confront, to combat, and to oppose all false teachings, arguments that oppose themselves, that exalt themselves against the gospel of Christ. The gospel of the progressive Christian is anti-Christ. It does not believe that you need Christ. It doesn't believe in a Christ, but it does make people feel good. And if we value our feelings at the expense of truth, then there's nothing that we can say or do apart from to continue to reach out to those who still value truth. Make sure that that's your goal and priority in this life. Make sure you've at least given them the dignity and taken the time to ask them meaningful questions. And when they have shown themselves insincere, aggressive, and inconsistent, then ultimately send them on their way. But if, and they'll probably do that for you as we saw here, but make sure that that is your top priority in these matters because it is just that serious. Truth matters and we are experiencing and encountering people in our culture who don't care about those things. They just care about their feelings, but reality continues to march on. And we believe that reality is something, to quote Greg Kokel, that uh, you trip over if you don't take it seriously. We want to warn them, but it's ultimately up to them. Thank you. Yeah. We have a few more questions that have come in. Yesterday we had uh, a discussion about the Trinity. Yeah. And um, we decided it's like Neapolitan ice cream, right? It's like chocolate and vanilla and strawberry in the same time. No, we didn't. No, no. We decided, we decided <laughs> the opposite of That's that. right. Yeah. The, there is no one like God at all. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's nothing we can compare him to. He's not like an egg, you know, the shell and the white and the, and the yolk. We can try and maybe speculate, but there is no one like God. But um, Annie, thank you for joining us. Your question um, is, so is it equally fine to pray to whichever person in the Trinity. So who do we, when we pray, who should we direct our prayer to? Well, uh, there's a couple of scriptures, I think, that can give us uh, guidance along this line. You know, Annie, I think you hit the nail on the head uh, when you said that uh, when Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to pray to the Father in Jesus' name. Uh, In uh, John chapter 16, uh, we are told in uh, verse 26, In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and believe that I came from God. I came forth from God and have gone into the world again. I leave the world and uh, go to the Father. Jesus said that we are to pray to him, to the Father, in Jesus' name. Surely in that day you will ask me nothing, verse 23 says. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Ask so, the Father, so the Father's the audience, in my name, that's the authority by which we come to the Father in any way other than hostility, and it will be given to you. Now, notice the connections established there. By who? Romans 8 says it's the Holy Spirit. 
Right. So that is standard operating procedure. However, I don't think we can build a doctrine that says unless your prayer is properly formatted, unless you address the Father in Jesus' name, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, it's going to get booted back to you and say, try again. Um, no. Uh, you know, there's a great example of this in the book of Acts, chapter 8. Uh, we are told uh, that Stephen, as he was being stoned, uh, fell on his knees and cried, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So who is Stephen crying out to at that particular time? God oh, sorry, Stephen. You got that prayer formatted wrong. Uh, we, you know, again, the, the important thing is not that we become nitpicky in terms of how we pray. I, I've run into people who say, you know, it's really difficult for me to address my prayers to my father because my father was very abusive in, in circumstances. Is it okay for me just to pray to Jesus? And, and I would say, well, it was certainly okay for Stephen to pray to Jesus. He's presented as a role model here. Uh, so, you know, what's... Just don't pray to Mary. Yeah. 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 Don't yeah. go to the mother. Well, yeah. the, the bottom line, though, is, is this. God has given us, in the teaching of Jesus, an incredible picture of how our prayer life should be. And if Jesus says, um, talking about the prayer he gave to his disciples to pray, pray there, then in this way, our Father in heaven. Well, then, if Jesus said to do that, I think that should be our goal. Now, if you've got some emotional baggage uh, that's going on that makes that difficult, well, then I don't think God is going to refuse to hear your prayer because of that. However, the Lord will probably work on your life to be able to show you a distinction between your Heavenly Father and the Father that wasn't so much uh, here on earth. And he wants you to grow beyond all of that. But the most important thing is not to say, well, then I'm just going to put off praying until I get to that point of personal maturity. Uh, no, I don't think there's any problem with praying to Jesus in that set of circumstances. Uh, and uh, you know, as far as the Holy Spirit is concerned, uh, I don't really think that you can see in Scripture any prayer directly addressed to the Holy Spirit as far as a model is concerned. But because the Holy Spirit is fully God and because the Holy Spirit does pray for us and intercede for us with groanings which cannot be uttered in Romans chapter 8 and verse 26, uh, you know, singing a song saying, you know, Holy Spirit, uh, we, you, you're welcome here. Mm. I, I don't think that God finds that repulsive. Um, I, I think he's glad that we're worshiping him, and I think he would want us to grow in maturity in our walk with him so that we follow through on the directions for prayer that are, are gathered there. But nowhere in that does Jesus say, if you don't pray in just this way, forget it. Yeah, and again, as uh, David facetiously but still necessarily pointed out for those listening, there is an important clarification you made. The Holy Spirit is fully God, as much right. as God the Son and God the Father. If we pray to anyone apart from God, that's blasphemy and should be corrected immediately. Right. But in addressing uh, God in our prayers, understand that the Father, Son, or Spirit can hear you and it will be received with joy. But if, on the other hand, we want to model our prayers in Scripture as our Lord demonstrated for us, the Father's always the audience. The Son is always the means by which we are coming to Him positively, and the Spirit is the one who makes the connection. So just remember that and you'll be fine. Yeah. It's a great question. And I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, because as I'm, you know, hearing you guys talk about this and I'm thinking about it myself, I think about. 
you know, without getting, I don't think I've thought about it like theologically like that, but just knowing the roles of, of the, the persons of the Trinity, you know, Jesus said, right, you know, when the, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convict the world of sin right. and point to, to Jesus. Right. And Jesus is the one that, you know, came and kind of related to us on that human level and saved us on the cross to, you know, to reunite us with the Father. So um, as I pray, and, and like I say, I, I haven't really thought this through until now, I tend to, if it's something about moving, you know, moving us, um, you know, as, as I'm leading worship and praying, you know, I kind of, Holy Spirit, you know, do that work of moving, convicting. Um, Jesus tends to be the main one I pray to because he's that relatable one who came and died in our place. And the Father is sort of, you know, kind of that the ultimate picture of that Godhead and authority. And um, I think that tends to be where my mind goes. It depends on what I'm praying for and what role I'm, I'm looking for God to be, if that you know, if that makes sense. Well, and the more you get to know Jesus, the more you realize everything you love about him is revealed to us because that's what the Father is like. Right. But the Father is spirit, and we don't uh, have a body to reference with him. But yep. we did with the Son. If you love Jesus, you're going to love the Father. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you right. know, I think of Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, where it says, We have not received the spirit of fear leading to bondage, but you've received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, what is the spirit of adoption? Well, that is the Holy Spirit ministering to us, letting us know that we are chosen and accepted by him, adopted into the bosom of God's family. Mm. But the ultimate move of the Holy Spirit, and I think one of the signs of the genuine fruit of the Holy Spirit, is that moving towards an understanding and uh, a a connection with the Father himself. Mm. Uh, That just seems to be the way the flow of prayers described within Scripture. But, you know, as I say, uh, there's no formatting uh, errors, uh, you know, there's no, well, try again. Right. Um, but I do think there is uh, a desire uh, of the Lord to uh, glorify the Father. Mm. And, and there is that role of the Holy Spirit that causes us to cry out, uh, Abba, Father. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a challenge because, you know, Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. All of what we can understand about the unseen Father, who's absolutely glorious, who no man has seen or can see, uh, is revealed in the person of Christ. So I understand exactly what you're saying. Mm. And it certainly is the move of the Holy Spirit that moves us in that direction. But ultimately, I think a sign of spiritual maturity is wanting to have our prayers done the way Jesus instructed them to be done. Right. Yeah. So Our yeah, Father yeah, in yeah, heaven, yeah. hallowed be the name. Yeah. 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 Uh, two more questions before we have to sign off. One from Monica about Revelation and one from uh, Nicholas regarding uh, false prophets that make true predictions. Uh, can we do Nicholas's one first? Uh, certainly. Do you have it in front of you there? Yeah. It's, uh, and I'll take Monica's. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what does it uh, mean when someone says something and does it when it comes to pass? He gives some examples. He was in the New Apostolic Reformation, which we have no kinship with. And some people said things that came to pass. Sure. Now, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, you, verses 3 through 5, you can read this on your own time, Nicholas. Deuteronomy 13, verses 3 through 5. The Lord acknowledges that there could be people who present, quote-unquote, signs and wonders, but the doctrine still false. And he says, and I quote, The Lord is allowing this so that he may test you, that you may love the Lord your God. And, of course, goes on to note in five chapters that yeah. when it doesn't come to pass, which is eventually going to happen, you will then hold them accountable to it. So we judge prophecy, legitimate prophecy, through two means, the substance of what they're claiming and the substance of the evidence that's backing it up. Not one or the other, both. 
that's how we judge it. If false prophets get a lucky one every now and then, understand that one false prophecy is enough to title you a false prophet. But if, on the other hand, you're put in a situation where you're like, I don't know of any false prophecies, I just know this one, well, judge it by the truth that you already can examine it with, you'll be fine. Now, for Monica's, uh, her question, uh, Dave, do you want to read it? Yeah, sure. Um, can you please explain the 10 days of tribulation? Ah. The Apostle John wrote, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw you some, uh, some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Revelation 2.10. You have one minute. Good luck. Yeah. Well, that was uh, <laughs> Jesus' letter to the church at Smyrna, uh, the persecuted church. By the way, it is uh, that and the church at Philadelphia, the outreaching church, the only two churches that have no word of correction given to them. In other words, just keep doing what you're doing. Oh, wow. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, he said, do not fear any of these things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. You'll have tribulation 10 days. Two different thoughts about this. Some see these as the 10 uh, dominant uh, Caesars down through time that persecuted the early church, uh, that there were you know, 10 of them. That's a little shaky because, again, there were probably more than 10. Um, they just tend to highlight a few of them historically. It's a little bit of cherry picking, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, it's entirely possible that by 10 days, Jesus meant 10 days. Uh, to this particular mm. church, he was saying, it's going to be really heavy on you, mm. but it's going to be a limited time. It's not going to be indefinite. It could have been 10 days of, of persecution over the top. Uh, but uh, Jesus said that you may be tested. You'll have tribulation 10 days. There was a reason behind it. Be faithful unto death. I'll give you the crown of life. Mm. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us. Have a great weekend. We'll be back on Monday, same places. We hope to see you then. God bless you. Have a great day. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.